Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. Tribe Called Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz, Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim. And you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Talk House Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. This week's episode began somewhere not particularly known for good or fruitful ideas, Twitter. That's where the poet Maggie Smith dropped a funny notion, which songwriter John Darnielle of the Mountain Goats picked up and ran with. Smith, who was in the process of splitting up with her husband, suggested a photo essay in which she'd take her old wedding dress on a tour of the country, Weekend at Bernie's style, only the dead thing isn't a guy, it's her marriage. Never one to shy away from life's darkest moments, Darnielle jokingly suggested, or at least it seemed like a joke, that there was a song in Smith's idea, and he suggested calling it Picture of My Dress. And then, wouldn't you know it, he went and wrote the song, releasing it on last year's excellent album, Getting Into Knives. Here's a little of Picture of My Dress. Here at a truck stop in New Mexico Just before dawn Somebody's grandma Behind the wheel of a big rig Pulling in with her headlights on It probably shouldn't come as a surprise that Darnielle came up with the song. He's so prolific that it makes the average person, meaning me, really jealous. The Mountain Goats released two studio albums and a live album in 2020, and another new album this year called Dark In Here. He's also an accomplished novelist and served as a judge for the 2020 National Book Awards. Speaking of writers, nice segue there, Josh. Maggie Smith had the unusual distinction of being a poet who broke through to the wider world with a poem called Good Bones back in 2016. Last year, she released the well-received essay collection Keep Moving, Notes on Loss, Creativity, and Change, and just last month released a poetry collection called Goldenrod. All are well worth your time, and Smith is on a sort of virtual book tour at the moment. You can check out the details at her website, maggiesmithpoet.com. In this conversation, Darnielle and Smith talk about the unusual nature of their kinda-sorta collaboration, a delightful thing she calls the cake sound, John's failed attempt at writing a song about NASCAR, and lots more. Enjoy. Maggie, have we met in person? No, I was just thinking about that. I think we've we've really only interacted publicly on Twitter and then in emails and, and little, you know, screens on DMs, but never in person. I mean, I've been to shows. Which ones? Ace of Cups? The last one I was at was in Cincinnati. Oh, no kidding. I love Cincinnati. Which was maybe it was a terrific show. Yeah. Cincinnati, man. I mean, it's... Along with Pittsburgh, it's one of the most underpraised towns around, you know. So it's also funny, you know, it's like normally I'm the guy who kind of over-personalizes the interview and says, well, how are you doing? Who am I talking to? You know, and now all interviews begin with, you know, how are you holding up? Are you at home all the time? How's your town? Yeah, it's <laughs> like, true because we're all kind of in this weird liminal. Um, yeah, I am hiding in my bedroom right now because there were some aggressive suburban leaf blowers. Oh, man. Yeah. Out on the street in front of my house and my office is like a completely it's just encased in windows right on the front of my house i have that well with two kids in the house is like you know normally i have an office that i go to but i don't go there now because it's all hands on deck here at home with two kids yep so i i was working on my next book and i stopped going to the office to do it as soon as i got to a stage where i could because 
you know, everybody need my wife works a job too. She's working remotely from the kitchen table and supervising Moses in school. Uh, and so there becomes interview things where it's like, you know, I go out to the yard and the kids follow me to the yard for the interview. <laughs> it's like, which is a blessing, but it's, it, it changes everything. Interview season has been very, very different. It has been different. I've been bribing my kids with snacks and movies in my bed on my laptop so I can zoom and do like live TV or interviews from my office. <laughs> yeah, I do that. But then Roman has a thing where he wants to come in and talk to the people on the Zoom. Right? So it's like, and he gets very upset if he can't. And so it's a whole, it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. He got to say goodbye to all the National Book Awards people uh, last night who were, he was very, very fond of that became, that's been the most consistent thing in my life actually has been the meeting of the fellow judges on the National Book Awards. I love it. Yeah, that's been my social life. <laughs> so it's our, our monthly meetings to, to winnow the field of all these books we're reading to get down to. Yeah, and there's a much worse social life that one could have than gathering with book people to talk about books. No, I, it was good. And I, I mean, I, I feel I was the one who's sort of like, it, like gently, but leading by example. So, you know, why don't we have, why don't we have drinks while we do this? <laughs> so you have a new book out and you, you're on TV about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a weird time to have a book out, especially a book about resilience and getting through tough stuff. It's like, well, oh, hi, 2020. <laughs> I suppose it's a good enough time to release a book about getting through tough stuff. But yeah, so I've been doing book tour from this house, sometimes with my kids here, sometimes they've been at their dad's and we're just kind of cobbling it together and making it work. Dad is, is in the same town as you? Yeah, for now, not for long, but for now he is. Wow, that's a blessing there. Yeah, it's been useful. That's about to change and, and things will get a little different. But for now, they've been able to bounce back every few days and see lots of both of us, which has been really good. And how old are they? Mine are eight and 11, although my daughter will be 12 next month. Wow. 12, 12, 12. That's big. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think I started writing poems around the time I was 12 or 13. So I remember what it's like to be that middle school girl just trying to figure out what the hell is happening in my brain and body and in the world. And now I'm supposed to be the somehow the wise oracle for that person. And it feels like a very full circle thing for me. Yeah, that's intense. 12 is 12, 13, 14 is sort of, that's my sort of wild zone. That's when I was at, at peak, sort really sort of, I'm going to be a writer. This is what I'm going to do. I'm starting to write short stories and submit them to the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. And what was the other one? Was Isaac Asimov's science fiction magazine or was it Analog? The John Dye? I can't remember, but I was like sending my short stories out. They were trash, you know, <laughs> I mean, they were utter trash. And some of the names who would be rejecting them, I would later, when I grew up, I go, oh, Mars Williams, that's actually a dude. Holy <laughs> moly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like I remember getting a personal rejection slip from Mars Williams and, and like, well, the guy's name is Mars. What's that? And then when you get into rock and roll, you go, oh, he's a dude, oh. an actual dude. <laughs> so, and doing all that kind of stuff. And at middle school, it was called junior high where I was at. And it was like, for my wife and I both actually something we bond about it. She, for both of us, like that was the worst of it. That was bad times. Oh, totally. You, you couldn't pay me any amount of money to be like 14 years old again. 14 was also bad, but I did get a girlfriend, right? And uh, that helps. It helped so much. <laughs> it was a big, big, <laughs> big, I mean, well, the thing is like, so we were very intimate and then the jocks who were being uncool to me, I could totally tell is like, your life is actually a little less complicated than mine right now. And that's why you're angry. Yeah, <laughs> so, exactly, exactly. And it was, it was huge for me. It was like pretty giant. <laughs> <laughs>
I can never tell if we've lost each other on these Zoom calls. Think about how weird that is. When you are having a conversation with somebody, you are generally not beholding an image of your face as you speak. That's something you would have to, like, ideally, if that was going to become your reality, you'd rehearse for it. And you'd like have a therapist you talk to and say, okay, soon I'm going to be going to this world where you're unable to have a conversation with somebody unless you are looking at your own face. <laughs> then you would figure out how that changes the situation for you. I know. I mean, it sounds like a premise for some dystopian novel. Yeah. Yeah. And yet we're living it. So here we are. Because that's the thing, because when you speak, that's, I mean, this is like in, in, in talking about the self in fiction and stuff, it's like the self does not behold itself when it acts. And ideally you have enough sort of integration with yourself that you're cool with that. Then, you know, you have the self that you imagine in your mind when you speak. And then when you do see film of yourself, you go, oh, I look a little different than the me who's in my imagination when I talk. Mm -hmm. And having those things become harmonious is sort of a mark of where you've come to, you know, and instead it's like there's this constant ringing discord. I feel it too. I mean, I think if you're not feeling that something's wrong, maybe that's a good, a good psychological marker. If it hurts you a little bit to have to look at your face all the time while you're talking, that's a good sign. I, I don't even remember when the first time I saw a picture of myself was, but my kids, as soon as they can register thoughts, are looking at pictures of themselves on screens and loving it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and wanting to see video, like, oh, yeah. bring me the video of myself. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. And I never... I never saw a moving image of myself until I was sometime in my twenties, probably. Yep. You know? yep. And uh, and these and they love it. I mean, kids are like they they can't and they like to see videos of themselves as babies when they get a little older, you know. And they just you know they have particular pictures they identify. You know, <laughs> there was when Roma was like two, we were shopping at Target, right? And he happened to grab a book that has speaker on it, and it was I'm sorry to inform you called a book about farts, right? <laughs> And it was like, it was in the, uh, they're trying to get rid of this thing, you know, and you open it and you punch the speaker and it makes fart noises, right? Well, he was two and a half, three years old. He thought it was the greatest thing he'd ever seen in his life, right? <laughs> and then like two years later, we're looking at pictures of it. He goes, ah, that picture is Roman and a book about farts. <laughs> I love it. Oh, I had to quit therapy because I couldn't afford it because I'm not working. But like when I was in therapy, I remember thinking I'm getting better when I'm able to sit quietly after a stretch of conversation without feeling like I have to break into it. <laughs> I feel the same way. I've had so much practice with this, just doing all of these Zooms and podcasts over the past several months. And it, it definitely feels healthy to allow a little bit of space without having to sort of do what I would do, which is like nervously laugh or crack. And like humor is completely the way that I cope with um, anxiety. And so just to be able to sit and take a breath and not panic is good. <laughs> you know, it's funny if you do that on most interviews, though, the interviewer gets nervous. <laughs> like, And I'm not because I talk so much, you know, I, I have to actually be doing this in a sort of a mildly sadistic way going, oh, I'm going to I'm going to stop talking and not say I'm done. I'm going to finish my sentence and stop. And just stop and let it breathe a little bit. I do that in teaching sometimes too. It's, you know, because you have to sometimes give students a little bit of time to think through things and let some silence fill the room until someone feels like they're ready to say something. And if you barrel on because you're nervous about those, you know, natural pauses in the rhythm of the, of the workshop or whatever, it kills everything. It's such a hard thing to develop. And I think also in the age of, 
what are the websites where they evaluate teachers and now all your evaluations are live online forever, right? Oh, God, yeah. (laughs) You know, which on the one hand, I think there's a value before I enroll in a class, especially if I'm in college and it's costing me a ton of money, right? Then I want to find out what do people say about this teacher. But on the other hand, I don't need to hear everybody's worst case scenario. Exactly. And if you don't, that's the thing is like the world so privileges at this time in history and in our culture, you know, active, very dynamic, very uh, spirited, very forceful stuff. You know, it's like the notions of pedagogy, I think, took a hard hit after Dead Poets Society, right? <laughs> yeah, if you're not standing on your desk, what are you doing? Yeah, then you, you must not really be excited about the stuff <laughs> if you're not yelling about it, right? And, and, like, and it's such a, also such a very male-coded thing. It's like, the man will stand up and tell you that it's real, right? And I'm, I, like, I was so bummed about that because, like, you know, poetry lives in quiet places, too, you know? And I think places where they have remained more engaged with poetry know this is like the space of poetry isn't just the space of shouting it from the mountaintop yeah it's rarely that space it is well like at the end of the poem if you go to a good reading you know at the end of the poem when it gets to the resolve and the space opens up you know that's really the poem hasn't happened until you get to that, that state and it's not it's not all whitman i by the way even though i now love walt whitman I will still get going hating on him. Because <laughs> okay, I'm here for all of it. Because of how deep his legacy is and how and how how many he's one of those one of those guys who like he's great, but we don't have to then shape our entire ethos around him, you know? I agree. Yeah, I love I love the moment at the end of a poem in a live reading situation where it gets really quiet and then someone or maybe multiple people all make the sound that I call the cake sound because it's kind of the sound that you might make when you put a bite of cake into your mouth. You know that sound where people go, mmm, at the end of a poem? Yeah. (laughs) I love that. And if you're not, if you're, you have to be quiet in order to give people the opportunity to make the cake sound and for you to hear it. And the reading itself is the cutting of the cake, that very careful measured of the slices, trying to get them all even, trying yes. to not put too much. If you have one that's too big, then it's going to throw off. The- <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I've been buying so many books, in part because I know indie bookstores need us right now and so many records and justifying it to myself that I'm, you know, supporting the arts and culture, but also if yes. I can't leave my house, I need, I need these things to help get me through the day. I do, except I don't, I mean, if I never bought another book again, I will not finish all the ones I have, right? I have too many <laughs> books. probably true in my case too. You know, but that did not stop me from renewing my subscription to Archipelago this morning. I think it's Borges or no, Garcia Marquez who has an essay about how, you know, the books you have, they're for reading, but they also represent versions of yourself. Like there's a, here, I discovered a writer, I was reading at Brookline Booksmith somewhere around Boston, and I always go straight to literature and translation place, and there was a, a book by Ibrahim Alconi, who I didn't know about, called The Bleeding of the Stone, but the blurbs on it all say, oh, this is like, if you want to know anything about Lebanese novels you want to start here I was like okay cool and I bought it and it was amazing so two years later I read another thing by him and I said this guy's great so I got his magnum opus which is called the fetishists uh, and it is a big a, a big hefty book right the kind of book you read 
when you don't have two children and two jobs. <laughs> uh, you know, and you try to, and I read a lot this year on the National Book Awards thing, but these are, this is a, a big tome. And I'm staring at it right now going, man, maybe, maybe, maybe. Well, maybe I never read this book, right? But the me who does read that book is off there in possible futures somewhere, really having a good time discovering the mind of this writer who most English readers will never even hear of. You know, and I just like to give the me who reads that book a little space in the house by having the book on the shelf. You know, I love that. It's there's some version of you, maybe some aspirational version who has more time and headspace than you have right now. But the, the other thing is, as you grow older, you know, it's not like my attention span is going to be keener when I'm 80. Like, like the idea. <laughs> The idea that once the kids are grown and there's enough time that I'm actually going to have this amazing focus that you, you know, that you have most when you're in your twenties and then you start to feel it fray a little bit, you know, it's like, and you can get a better focus for a shorter amount of time, but you're unlikely to have like, to be able to sit down and bore through war and peace in two days or something like that. You know? What are you talking about? We're totally going to be doing that when we're 80. <laughs> it's going to be like one of those old country time lemonade commercials on the porch but with a giant book. It's, that's totally what we're going to do. You know, I like to think that my physical fitness journey over the past few years will make it more likely that I can do this. You know, like that somehow, somehow organically it'll come together. I have to ask, so I know you're a runner. Do you come up with ideas, writing ideas, song ideas while you, while you run? Are you in your head in that way? Uh, very occasionally. I listen to music while I run. Yeah, so do I. Sometimes podcasts, but it, I, I did a podcast yesterday and I can't get, I listened to a Lisa Tuttle short story and it was great, but I can't quite get loose listening. To, I can't get free enough listening to podcasts and I'm more conscious of of body stuff that, that I otherwise will be completely unconscious of. Like, I just don't feel tired when I'm running to music at all. It's like, I mean, I'm up to three hour runs now and I won't feel tired. I'm just so, it's the music in me and, and, and the part of my body that doesn't get tired, you know, it's like kind of great. Whereas if I'm listening to prose, it's like, I'm so in my head that I can't really get free. Yeah. I keep trying because everybody else listens to talking podcasts and stuff and making my mixes now takes forever. Right? It's like, it's a, it's a long mix. So I have to spend a lot of time, you know, putting it together. Yeah. Three hours is a lot of songs. Yeah. Well, sometimes it'll be like an album in the middle. I'll, I'll talk about this forever, but, um, but when I do get an idea, I will either fire up a, a sound app or I will try and tap something into this note-taking program I use called bear. That's a really good thing for notes. And I'll get some, I'll get song titles. Uh, I got one on a long run a couple of weeks ago. I jogged past a place that has uh, some sort of thing with goats for Christmas. And I took <laughs> notes about that. <laughs> I love it. And I'm pretty sure, yeah, that one of these song titles on my song title note was during a run, Dirty Nightgown. I don't know what that one's about. I do titles first a lot of the time. I don't know where that one came from, but I think that was a, a phrase that, that just popped into my head while I was jogging. I feel like that's where a picture of my dress could go next. It's like maybe not, maybe not a good place. <laughs> <laughs> Dirty nuts, great. <laughs> it's the, the evolution. <laughs> the thing about the speaker in picture of my dress is fairly certain that life is going to be a, a great exploration now. You know, it's like you're sort of <laughs> over the hump, and now you don't know where you're going. But but there's an optimism to the song, right? It's like the. I think so. Let's not burst her bubble with with dirty night. <laughs> <laughs> I think you know, the bubble's got to get burst. It's like, you know, <laughs> that's the thing. Nobody ever writes the song. And this is a very real song too, I think. Although I'm not divorced, I can only speak from the sense of having exes with long relationships. But like, when people write songs about missing their exes, it's either very romantic or it's about wanting to sleep with them, right? And it's not about, it's not about, no, no, you know, 
you leave a self behind when you leave a relationship, right? There's you leave, you leave, and you don't really get to be that self anymore because that self was part of a contract, right? Yep. And the contract is broken. Now you don't get to be that self anymore. And there were a lot of perks to that self, usually alongside the parts that you were like, no, I can't, I have to go on to my new phase, right? And you miss that old self and you miss the comfort, you know, of that contract, right? That it's like, that's a song that nobody writes. No, it's true. I think maybe, I don't know. That's, that's a big thing to try to get into a song, but if anyone can do it, I, I feel like you might be the person for it. Uh, see, I, I'm actually going into a writing phase again. Now I, I, I started writing little, little songs a couple of weeks ago. And so I'll, I'm going to, I'm going to put it in the mix. <laughs> oh, good, good. Well, I, um, I have to say you, you can't see it and it's still in the bag, but I dragged my wedding dress into the room so it could be in the room while we were talking. Oh, that's awesome. It's been in a closet for all these years and has no idea as this object that I talked about it and then sort of inspired a song. So I dragged it out today and put it in my room. That's super interesting. So you kept it and you, you have not remade married. Is that correct? No, no. I've only been divorced for, um, I mean, I've been separated for two years. Oh, wow. This is fresh. This is really fresh. Yeah. I mean, honestly, when I tweeted that tweet about my wedding dress, my ex-husband had just moved out of our house the month before. Oh man. That's why it was such a fresh feeling. It was just, it was a (laughs) vital expression. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. It was very fresh. So no, no, not remarried. Just, uh, just living life. Yeah, I tell you, the night I first, I've only played it live once, obviously, uh, in front of an audience, but that was in November with, um, or December, maybe a year ago in Philadelphia. And that was the show at which somebody had me autograph their divorce certificate. Really? <laughs> it's the greatest thing. It's like, I've been asked to sign a bunch of stuff, but like, I, my divorce just got finalized today. Would you sign this? It's oh like, my gosh. I mean, that was such a deep thing to do, you know, it's like, so... I mean, because again, I'm not divorced. My, you know, divorce is a big part of my life on the other side. My parents' divorce was a defining event for me. Yeah. But uh, I mean, because I did not want to leave that house and I did not go to a better one. But because I've contemplated divorce so much, I wrote a million songs about a divorcing couple, you know, and I, I just worried my brain about it forever, you know, um, from from childhood onward, you know, it's like, I think I do have, and Peter, my, my uh, bassist went through one and, uh, and I was, we were very close in that time. And I, you know, I think I sort of have a notion. You can't know anything except from inside it, right? But I have, I have a notion of how people talk about it as if it was a little less than it was, you know, when it actually is. It's one of those things like childbirth is like, it's, it's comprehensive. It's going to inform every aspect of your being for a while. Absolutely. It's good, though, if you're going to, you know, tweet something about your dead marriage. <laughs> one of the best things that can happen is someone could respond to that tweet with, maybe I'll write a song about that. It was such. It was a great little plot line, and it also suggested a form. Is the thing is like I when I write, I don't normally sit down with an idea of genre, right? I just play. I just play and do, right? And then whatever I play first, I go, okay, well, this has got a little jazz thing. It's kind of jazzy, or this is, a, you know, a, I, I think what I my folky songs are more punk in their in the way that it's all fast and downstroke stuff. But but this is like, well, that's a country song, you know, that that's country or western, and and. Country songs are actually very hard to write. And that's why I only have one or two is like the guys who are good at it, the people who are good at it have a skill set that takes a lot of refining, you know, but occasionally you can get in the zone, you know, and I think the best way in is to have a good, a good hook and a good plot. And I would discovered with this one is if it's one you connect to, 
that's best because I I tried with I can remember the other country song attempts like I had one that I workshopped with a friend just in text for a while called Turn Left. It was going to be about a NASCAR driver, right? So in NASCAR, that's all you do. You right? just keep turning left. That's all you do, right? But, and, and so here was this song. It was a good it was a good frame, but I couldn't actually get the connection, and I felt like a poser. You know, I sort of felt like oh, you're trying to be, you're trying to participate in a conversation that you don't really belong to. And I'm sure there's great writers who are great at that, you know, insinuate themselves into it. But usually in any characters I'm writing, there's a level of it where I can very authentically imagine myself in that conversation, right? Yeah. I can't imagine a NASCAR, uh, NASCAR driver is going to, he's going to die in this song. And my friend Perry is the guy who came up with this is like, all my country songs tend to go through three phases, except for picture of my dress. So it's a young version of a person, present day person, person, and then later down the line version, right? And in turn left, he keeps describing, you know, turn left, lean into the turn was the idea. And, and he's viewing turning left as a way of, of sort of keeping your work in front of you, focusing on the one thing you're going to have to do right? Which in NASCAR is you're going to turn left and you drive straight and you're going to turn left, right? And viewing that as a life ethos. But then when he gets to the dying phase, right? He points out that he's only, I hope you're sitting down, he's only got one turn left, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I think you need to write a poem about how you can't write a NASCAR song. <laughs> I'm wondering if what spoke to you in a sort of country song way about this is, is it like the lost love plus travel? Cause it seems like maybe those two things. I mean, the thing, the tweet that you wrote, it had pain in it. You know, it's like I connected to the pain, like all the things you didn't get to do. Well, I mean, I'm a parent now, right? All the things I don't get to do as a parent, I am happy to forego them, right? I love my journey of parenthood, but that doesn't mean that there's not a pang to some of them right? Like my wife and I have always, we will plan five vacations before we take one, right? And we would very pinching pennies until they bleed around here. And so we don't, you know, we really didn't take that many vacations in 15 years of marriage before we had kids. And then once you have kids, you occasionally go, well, my bassist again, draws a great distinction. Before you have kids, you go on vacation. After you have kids, you go on a trip. Yeah. Right. There is no vacation. Right. So right. Like, you're just you're dragging your life to another location. Yeah. Exactly. You are. If you steal an hour of the vacation style chill on your trip with your kids, you're very lucky. And the trip is fun. You have a good time, but it's not a vacation. And we hardly ever took any. Well, now I I would trade the vacations we did have for these kids. I don't care. Right. I don't care. But there's a pang to it. You go, oh wow, what if we had gone to wherever? You know. And well, when that's something about your youth and marriage and the other, you know, experiences you might have had while you were trying to make something work that didn't wind up working, that's profound. You know, that's a deep feeling that you crammed into, what do we do now, 320 characters or something? Um, <laughs> I don't know, something like that. I was very against the, exp it's 280, I think, because it was 140 before and I was very against the expansion. I was too, and now I'm using it all up. Oh yeah, no, I, I overrun now. Well, I knew it was going to make me do that. I'm a loudmouth. I can't stop a motor. <laughs> and 140 was a great disciplinary exercise. Yeah, I mean, as a poet, I felt like I had an advantage when the character limit was lower. And now I'm like, oh, anybody can say something good now. There's so much space. Yeah, if you can't do it, in, if you can't do it in 280, anybody can do 280. Come on, I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but I mean, I think I think that feeling of I, I would say when I was talking about with books, it's possible worlds. But possible worlds in the past are ones you are not going to get to go to. If you go to them now, it's different, you know. And the stuff you traded away to be in a marriage that is, you know, 
that is, I think I, there's a line in the song about it. It's like, you, you can't get those years back. You can't. And so, nope. you know, now if they were a good investment in yourself, I assume they usually were, unless you were in an absolutely catastrophic marriage, you know, you didn't emerge with nothing. You emerged with knowing more about yourself. And that is something, you know, but, but at the same time, there's that sense of, I mean, there's a sense of loss with every passing day, right? Right. Especially now. I have actually learned that I do need a certain amount of socialization, but it took me four months to learn that. <laughs> it's like, because four <laughs> months, I was like, what? I'm doing what I was going to do anyway. <laughs> I'm an introvert. This is fine. Cool. <laughs> so, but I mean, I play cards with people and that was really important to me and doing it online does not scratch the itch. It's like, I do need the physical presence of bodies in my life. You know, yeah. I think playing live actually just being on stage satisfies my need to be around people because I get such a massive energy influx from that, you know? So what is it like not being able to do that? I mean, I watched a live stream show recently and I was thinking, God, it must be so strange to be playing in a room without people. So it was so different. We have some practice in doing that at radio stations and stuff. Never a full show like that. Uh, But I mean, it's so, this is one of those things like a marriage. I mean, I've been doing this for 25 years, I think. And we've been, as a band, we three, me, John, and Peter have been together since 2009. And Matt came on board just a couple of years later. So we've all been at it for 10 years or better together, right? And that's our, this is our deal, you know? And normally we have an expectation that for two to four months out of the year, we will be in one another's company in such close quarters that we won't even have conversations sometimes. We don't need to. It's like, it's not part of it. We'll go our own ways for, you know, 18 hours a day. Well, no, for 16 hours a day. But then from soundcheck from 4 p.m. until midnight to 2, we will be each other's company. And we, mm-hmm. you know, in, 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 in pursuance of a common goal making a communal expression of music, right? Which is its own universe to inhabit. It's this enormous biosphere that you go inside of. And then a bunch of other people come inside at the end of the afternoon and you all hang out in there and then you decompress together afterwards. And then you retreat out to your cubicles and you stay solitary until the next afternoon and you do it again. And lifestyle is a silly word, but that's what it is. It's like, this is a way of living, right? And it is the way that we know how to live. My drummer does it with like three different bands. He's out there six months out of the year or something like that. Oh, I know. I don't know how he does it. I have no idea (laughs) because he's one of those guys who comes home and goes back out two days later. And I did that for a couple of years. And at the end of it, it took a therapist to put me back together. It was, I I have to be home. I have to have feet on the ground for a certain amount of time. I have to get in the kitchen. I have to cook. I have to to be tethered, connected to the home in some way. But but yeah, it was so, so had being suddenly stripped of that, we went into the recording studio for two weeks right before it happened. And it was starting to happen in the middle of it, you know, and I was like, I was aware I was, I'm a nurse. I could see it coming. <laughs> I was like, oh guys, this is not good. I remember you texted, you messaged me from Memphis and sent a picture of, of you recording in the studio the song. And it was like maybe the first week of March and things were just about to to shut down. It was only getting weird by the end of the the, the next session. But I, I didn't for a minute think that like I would spend the whole year not being in a bus with my dudes or being on stage. This is the longest I've gone without being on a stage in front of people, you know, in my adult life, which is <laughs> a weird thing to say, you know. Uh, and it's my job. And you don't normally think about what needs is my job you know, satisfying in me. But yeah, it's like, we miss it. We miss it's each other's company. And the band is like, I miss being on stage, but I miss being on stage with my dudes. Yep, yep. Because that's the best when it's us and them 
and it's like it's two groups of people meeting like in a field and sharing this moment in time and doing it every night it's this profound banquet that we ex get to experience in our gig you know there's other bad parts of the gig that i constantly bitch about all the time because right? <laughs> i'm me <laughs> but but we are incredibly blessed incredibly fortunate to be musicians and to work in this business and and to have the rug yanked out well now we hustle all day it's like I, now i figure out how to stay doing stuff that still communicates to people how much I value their ears and their spirits, you know, and I'm doing it, you know, somewhat as a business thing, but also just because that, you know, the notion that we all just reach into our corners and see each other on the other side of this, I can't, you know, it's like, no, I, that connection is something that needs to be kept alive for me. Yeah, Zoom isn't working. And I'm trying to do a book tour on Zoom too, and not get to have that feeling of being in a room with people reading, you know, filling a bookstore with words and then signing a book and handing a physical object to a person and maybe hugging them because we used to be able to do that. There are good things to not being on the road. I think my kids really need me here this year in particular. I was talking to Rhett Miller the other day. and That's a good dude. He's such a nice guy. My my eight year old is named after him. Oh no kidding! I, I only met him once for an interview, but I was like, I was immediately struck by what a good dude that is. Such a nice guy. Yeah, my my youngest is Rhett, but he was saying that one of the perks of this year is that he's not on the road constantly for his kids from their perspective, because normally music is something that takes him away for stretches of time, and now he's doing every show from his house, and they're you know watching, and he's around, and. So so it's good, I think, to keep in mind some of these little silver linings, even, you know, for the other people in our lives, maybe who would be missing us if we were oh, yeah, constantly the, gone. The kids are absolutely loving it. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> My younger son is like, he gets a little extra energy burst after dinner and starts like making a laundry list of the other of the rest of the play he wants to do, right? Oh. And you go, hey, bud, you know what? I've been at this since 6 a.m. And uh, I, I don't want to say to you that your parents are excited for your bedtime, but your parents are excited for your bedtime. Oh, 100%. Because we're going to get 15 minutes of rest before we crash. And so <laughs> we don't have anything left in the tank after 9 p.m. We play. We play really hard at the end of the day. It's it's fun. They're boisterous dudes. We got to wrestle. We got to do stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not much of a wrestler, but we do have we do have a lot of dance parties. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah to, today skating. We did, today we did calisthenics. That was really good. I, 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 my, my dude was visibly struggling to complete three reps of five crunches and he did it. I was very, very proud. I don't think I could do that. So I'm glad you're not my drill sergeant. <laughs> I'm totally, you know, here's the thing. I used to really like theater rescue and I think becoming a PE teacher in my, in my dotage will be the way to go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love this this uh, new possibility for you. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great career tour. He's like, well, I had a good time as a singer songwriter and as a novelist, but, but I had to pursue my passion of, of teaching PE. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Can I ask you a question? You have tattoos. I do. Are they also post-divorce? The ones on my right arm are pre-divorce and the three on my left arm are post-divorce. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I didn't start getting tattoos until very late in the game and I got them after a bad year was my first one. I was like, I wanted to sort of get a stamp on me about about that. Uh, that may have been happening and I just was not cognizant of of it being a bad year. <laughs> and then everybody who had like people juggle. Once you get one, I was like, well, that's totally true for me. <laughs> now I'm just covered. Once you sort of like break the seal, it's like, oh, it's just skin. What have I been wait? Why did I wait 38 years to think? See, I actually know why I waited because my grandfather uh, extracted a promise from me when I was 10 
I wasn't even that close to him, but I was wearing a, a press on one and he was like 90 and John, what is that? And he looked at my father really accusingly. This was in a rest home. I said, Max, what has John got? And I could tell he thought that my father had let his, his 10 year old get a tattoo, <laughs> right? And my father was a very sort of, uh, very over serious about anything like that. Oh, no, dad, that's, that's just a, that's, that's just from a gun pack. John would never get a tattoo. It's one of those things where I'm Catholic. If you tell me I would never do something, right? And then I happened to, for the sake of a harmonious conversation, go, oh yeah, no, I, I, I wouldn't get one, right? Well, I carried that for 30 something years. I was like, you told your grandpa who you didn't really know at all. Right? <laughs> like, <laughs> you wouldn't get one, right? You got to hold, got to be good to your word, man. And I was like, and I thought about it after my wife broke the seal on hers. I was like, God, that looks cool as hell. <laughs> it's like, I should get one, but you promised your grandfather who's been dead for 35 years. That, <laughs> that, uh, and so then, then I did it. I was like, oh yeah, that was, that was foolish. So, so it's okay. Well, the thing is, but then if you wait until late, then you have a whole new thing you can be doing. Right. I, mean, I would have run out of space by now if I had started 18. Oh, 100 percent. Yeah, I would have I would be out of real estate by now. So it's it's good that I'm pacing myself. I had one this summer. What'd you get? Oh, uh, a gardenia. Oh, cool. Which is my mom's favorite flower. So I did. I had that. I mean, like masked hand gel for people in the shop. Completely fine. But I had scheduled it beforehand and it takes, you know, eight months to get an appointment. And I just thought, no, I'm going to go, I'm going to do it. And I did. Yeah. I should, I should make an appointment. It's hard to decide what to do with the, with the rest available, of the available space. I, ha- I actually have some dogwood, the snake going through dogwood here. Oh, I love that. Where's the snake's head at? Is it snakes? You can barely, it's one of my older, oh, there's this thing. Yeah. It's a king snake. I love it. Yeah. I right now my rule for myself is it has to be organic and it has to be black and white. Oh, you just do black and white. Yeah, yeah. I'm only doing black and white. And so if I if I'm only doing sort of black and gray and every it has to be something that like grows or is or was once alive. That's like that's my compass. But that's a lot of stuff. And here's the thing, I love color. So I'm like, well, maybe I should break that rule. I don't know. Oh, I like the glasses. The crab is holding my glasses because I was standing in the North Carolina surf. Moses talked really young, so he could have been much older than two, maybe just before two. And I'm holding him and I'm in the surf. And this is a baby. I forget if he was even fully, you know, he's walking, but not much, right? So I got the baby in the surf and it's cool. I'm knee high. And the water began to actually get choppy and rise fast, right? And, and uh, but we're having fun, you know, we're singing and stuff. And it's not so high, it's on my hips or something like that. And a big old wave came right over my head. I'm holding the baby. I know he'll be fine, but I have to focus on the baby, right? So I root my heels and the wave goes over and it crests and we're shaking our heads. You okay, buddy? You all right? And he points at my eyes and I went, oh, my glasses are gone. And he goes, well, I said, well, maybe, maybe a crab took the glasses and he laughed and it became a, a, a shtick, you know, for the next couple of days. Like, did a crab take daddy's glasses? <laughs> you know, so now I have, that's the exact pair of glasses that the crab, uh, that I no longer have. <laughs> I love that. My father wore his money clip. This, they're the legend of the money clip into the ocean one year when we were on vacation when I was a kid with all of our vacation money in his money clip in no. his like trunks and lost it. It's too bad I only get organic tattoos because my tribute tattoo to my dad could be like a dolphin with a money clip. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Which, you know, it would probably not be that attractive on me after all, but it would be it would be funny. 
Well, hey, good to meet you face-to-face sort of and to have a good conversation. Same, same. Hopefully when the world makes more sense, I'll come to a show and and I'll wave. We'll be back at it. And the thing is, we seriously, the band and I are in text about it talking every day. It's like just, we really want to be doing the thing that we do again, because everything I'm doing now is stuff I can do and be good at. But with the exception of writing, it's stuff I wouldn't normally be doing. You know, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, it's like, it's just out of my, it's a substitute skill set for the stuff I actually have become good at. Yep. We're all treading water right now. It'll be good to get back at it. Yeah. It's going to be weird, but I'm into it. Oh, uh, well, this is fun. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Talk House podcast. And thanks to Maggie Smith and John Darniel for chatting. If you liked what you heard, please follow us wherever you get your podcasts and or your social media. This week's episode was produced by Melissa Kaplan, and the TalkHouse theme is composed and performed by The Range. See you next time.